Okay, we are grabbing our Bibles. We are diving into the book of Ephesians together. And just want to remind you, we've got microphone runners uh, here tonight. If you have a question, it's okay to have a question. But it helps if you wait for the microphone runner to get there because we tape this. And people listen online. And if you shout it out, I may hear your question. But the people that are listening don't. And then all of a sudden they're going, how in the world did we start talking about that? And it's because they didn't hear your question. So it's helpful for us if you can wait, if you can answer, you know, ask it on, uh, with uh, the microphone in front of you there. So grab our Bibles. It's Ephesians chapter 1. We are cruising like crazy. I think we have made it to uh, verse 7. Does that sound right? Okay. Three weeks and uh, verse 7. We're going to actually try real hard tonight to get a little further than that. So uh, we, we may actually do like six verses tonight. So here we go. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. We've actually touched on this verse a little bit when we were here last time. Here's what it says. In him, uh, and we know it's talking about Jesus Christ, even though it's not capitalized. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And we said, why is that phrase, through his blood, important? Does anybody remember? Uh, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, Hebrews, guys, ready? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, simply says this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And guys, if that statement is true, then what, then what the Bible is saying, and guys, you've got to get this, because there, not only are there, and this is the part, guys, that is huge for you and I to let kind of lay on tonight, is not only are there false religions... They're going to say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. Here's how you get to heaven. And they're going to offer their prophet or they're going to offer their spokesman or they're going to offer their version of the Bible. But, and here's how you can always recognize a false religion. False religions always are going to give you a system to get to heaven. They're always going to say, follow our nine rules, follow our seven rules, and you're going to make it to heaven. Man-made religion is always works-based. Always. And it is an immediate identifier of a counterfeit faith. The Bible, Scripture, Christianity is the one religion that comes back and says, look, no matter how hard you work, you will never, never, never make it. It, it, you You cannot outdo or undo the brokenness that sin has brought to your life. And you need a Savior... And then you ready for this phrase? And without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sin. And Christianity simply comes back and says, look, look, what you got to get is, this is why this is not religion. Religion says, hey, here's the 12 steps to make it to heaven. Here's the five rules to get there. And Jesus came back and said, I'm not bringing you religion. I'm going to show you a pathway. I'm going to show you a way to have a relationship with God. But it will come through the blood. It will come through my sacrificial death. Now, here's the reason that's crucial, is that not only has that conversation gone on for hundreds of years with false religions outside the church, but right now within the church, there is all sorts of movement within the church to say, look, Jesus' death isn't the big deal. That, That it's really just kind of an example of being sacrificial, of being a good person. And there is a huge movement in the church 
and I got to say this with gentleness because it's, it's mixed, but there's a huge movement in the church that is beginning to focus on doing good things is what Jesus came to teach. And you need to hear that is not the central message of Jesus's coming to earth. Jesus's central message is without my death, you will never know God. That is the central message. The central message of Jesus is not go on the highway and clean up the trash. Go be nice to your neighbor. Though, although Jesus would be supportive of all those things, that is not the central message of the gospel. The gospel is the substitutionary death of a Savior shedding his blood on a cross. And anybody who says, let's go dig a well over here or let's go build a house over there and let's forget to tell the story of a Savior who died on a cross has lost the gospel message. I'm fine if you go build a house. I'm I'm with you. You know that Cornerstone builds lots of houses. You know that Cornerstone digs lots of wells. But in the midst of that, you and I always take the story of a Savior who died on the cross, because that is the gospel, not doing nice things for people. Okay? We're there? How many people are mad? Okay, all right. All right, here we go. Uh, Verse 8. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 8. That he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Okay, so question number one is simply, what is the mystery that he made known to us? What is that? What is the mystery? Matter of fact, several times in Scripture, uh, it talks about this mystery that's been revealed. What is that when the Bible says the mystery? Not the Trinity. Not the Da Vinci Code. Is it the way to get to heaven that Christ was going to die? Okay, that Christ was going to die is part of the mystery. Because here, here's what you got to get. The Jews, as they came up to Messiah, one of the reasons they missed Messiah is that they had not considered that he would die. Now, this is interesting because all through the Old Testament, God has given examples and talked about the fact that he was sending the lamb. Remember, we talked about that last week. But they were so focused... On the benefits of the Messiah, having their own kingdom, being autonomous, the wealth that was told that was going to happen, inhabiting and having control of Israel, that they believed the Messiah would ultimately be a political figure and not a Messiah. So the death on the cross was incredibly confusing to them. Okay? I was just going to say salvation. The mystery is salvation. Yeah, and again, I think, I think you're right. Salvation coming the way it did was absolutely confusing for them. The Holy Spirit, that they would have a helper, a teacher that was going to reveal all things. I think you're exactly right that they had no idea about that. I don't know that that's what Scripture means when it talks about the mystery that was revealed. So, yes, you're right. That was something completely they had never considered that up that possibility, but probably not the mystery. Um, Pastor Linda, that the Gentiles would be could be saved. Yeah, that the Gentiles could be saved. Okay, matter of fact, grab your Bibles real quick. 
because it's going to talk to us about this mystery. Colossians chapter 1. So it's going to be a little bit to the right in your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. Okay, so here it is. Let's start in verse 24 because it gives you a little bit of background. Here we go. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Here's what it says. This is Paul talking. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up my flesh with what is still lacking in regarding to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the deal. The Jews had absolutely no idea of this incredible thing called the church, which is primarily inhabited by what group of people? Gentiles. How many Jews in the room tonight? How many born-again Messianic Jews? Isn't this an interesting moment? I mean, stop and think about this, because here we have the Jewish Messiah who then turns his attention to the Gentiles. Now, there was, there was, there was foreshadowing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament said, and he will bring all nations to him. And the Jews had at least a hint of this. But what you need to know is they had absolutely no idea that it meant this. That there would be a time in which Israel would be basically set aside. And that there would be this thing called the church, which would be the primary agent. So I'm thinking about this. Right now in the world, if this world is ever to have a chance to get to know God and understand God, is it going to come through the Jew or is it going to come through the Gentile? It's going to come through the Gentile. It's going to come through this thing called the church. Matter of fact, you and I are right now in the process of trying to win the Jew back to God. Isn't that interesting? And the Jewish nation had absolutely no concept of this moment happening. Here's an interesting question. When did this moment happen? When, when did this mystery come about? Okay, I'm going to... Um, this is interesting. You may, hopefully you'll find it interesting. I'm going to toss it out there for you. Old Testament primarily involves itself with what group of people? Jews. Jesus comes to earth for 30 years. As he preaches here on earth, he primarily focuses his ministry on the Jews. So when did this become about the Gentiles? Isn't that an interesting thing? Somebody going to take a shot at it? When the Sadducees and Pharisees uh, continued to deny who he was, and he called mm. them, yeah, brought a vipers, he says, and he starts, then it changes. Okay. Would it be when they crucified him? It's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest it's before that. Okay? That's a great guess. He said, yeah. many, he said many times that the kingdom of God is at hand and then when they did not accept him as the messiah that's when he said the lamb must die yeah so okay do it over here for a second is it when he cried over jerusalem when he said if you had known what came to you and what it Mm. took this day yeah 
So Matthew, when he stands there on the Mount of Olives, says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together like a hand gathers her chicks, and you would not come to me. Yeah. But it was God's plan from the beginning. It was God's plan from the beginning. But remember, remember, we, remember this conversation that we had a couple weeks, or last week even, about, about Calvinism and predestination and predetermination. It's kind of interesting stuff. In, in Gethsemane, when he took the sins of the world on him. Ah, uh, Gethsemane, when he's taking the sins of the world on him. Yeah. All right, let me give you something. Let me give you a moment. I think it's an interesting moment. You may think it's just completely weird. I think it's a, a pretty cool moment in Scripture. Go with, go with me to Matthew chapter 12. Okay, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you put your finger in Matthew chapter 12 for a second. We're going to get there. Okay, but before you do that, go with me to Matthew chapter 3. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Near. What's the kingdom? I mean, is, is, is there going to be a kingdom someday? All right, so what marks the kingdom? Huh? Okay, I think it's more than the beginning of Christ's ministry. The Messiah's reign. See, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And the kingdom will be marked when Jesus sits on the throne and rules. So what does this mean when John the Baptist says, Hey guys, get ready, repent, 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 because the kingdom is near. Because stop and think about this for a second, guys. How long has it been since John the Baptist said this? 2,000 years, right? I, I, I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel near. So what did John the Baptist mean when he said, Hey, guys, 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 get ready. Repent right now. The kingdom of heaven is near. Um, didn't he mean that if they had accepted Jesus um, when he came, that they could have got right on with the kingdom coming to earth right then? Mm. But since they rejected him, and I think it's probably like the first half of the book of Matthew, they, he kept on saying the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is at hand. And then when they finally rejected him, then he said that he had to die in order for the kingdom to, to come. Okay. So what do you think about that? That, that Jesus is making, that, that in the early days of Jesus' ministry, he is making a legitimate offer of the kingdom. He's saying, guys, if you'll do this, if you'll accept me as Messiah, if you'll accept me as Savior, we'll just do the kingdom right now. What do you think of that? How could that be, though? Because um, the Old Testament was full of um, foreshadowing of the death, like um, of Abraham's son on the altar with the ram as the scapegoat okay. or whatever. It's a good question. How does that, how, how does that fit? Because there's got to be the death. Remember what we just read in verse 7 of Ephesians? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Let's go to another passage real quick. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, you ready? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean? Let's go to another verse. Go to chapter 10 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. This is Jesus, he's sending out the disciples to go preach in all the neighboring towns. Here's what he tells the disciples to preach. 
As you go, this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is what? Near. What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven is near. Is it Christ reigning in the hearts of believers? I don't think so. And here's why I don't think that. I mean, it's a good, it's a good shot. But here's the deal. He's reigning in the hearts of believers right now, and yet you and I are still waiting for the kingdom to happen. It's going to be the millennial reign is when the kingdom, after the tribulation, the kingdom gets established. Was it his presence on earth? I mean, the fact that he was walking amongst them? I think the fact that he was walking amongst them meant the kingdom was near. But what would it mean for the kingdom to have come? So here's what I'm going to suggest, okay? Let me toss this out. Okay, go ahead and I'll, we'll do one more and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can mess with your brains a little bit. God's will was near? His, his will? You're right in this sense. When the kingdom is here, God's will will be done. Matter of fact, remember the prayer when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray? He says, Father, help us, help us do your will here on earth the way that it's done in heaven. Because the way it's done in heaven is the way it's going to end up getting done on earth whenever Jesus sits on the throne here on earth. But that's, that's a sign of the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. Oh, is it that, like, Christ died on the cross for us, so our sins are, like, set free, and so now the kingdom is not like, okay, it's I, in heaven, but it's also here on earth? I actually, I actually think Jesus dying on the cross is outside the kingdom. Okay, we've got to think about this, guys. The kingdom is when the king sits on the throne. What does Jesus mean when he says to Israel, the kingdom is near? You're standing at the door of the kingdom. Okay, here's one. Go ahead, we'll do one more, and then I'm going to, because we've got other stuff we're going to cover tonight. I want to spend some time. Could it mean when uh, Jesus rose from the dead? I don't, man, I don't think so. Because remember, here's the deal. He's got to be on the throne, and the kingdom's got to be here on earth. It means that he's not yet there, but he's almost getting there. So get ready. The kingdom is there. He's, 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 the, he's the heir to that throne, and he's almost there. Okay, and I, I agree with that. I think you're right. I think we're almost there. My problem is now it's 2,000 years awaiting. That seems too long for near. Okay, right, let, me, let, me talk, let, me, let, me, let me just throw something out for you to consider, Okay. When you go to the early ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ in its opening days is repent, the kingdom is near. I'm going to suggest that if Israel had accepted the king, the kingdom would have come. Now here's the answer. I don't know then what the death of Jesus looks like, but I guess is the death of Jesus is, never, is no longer about rejection. I think the death of Jesus then becomes a death of obedience. Okay? Don't be wrong. Jesus, the Bible says, was obedient to the cross. But right now, the central part of the death of Jesus is a death of rejection, right? His own people are spitting on him, put, putting the crown of nails in his head. The death instead, I think, would have been an unbelievable worship service in which he would have laid down his life. Okay? So the death had to happen. You're exactly right. I just don't think the death would have been wrapped in rejection. I think it would have been wrapped in obedience. Okay? So I'm going to suggest that if, if Israel had accepted the king, the kingdom would have come. 
That's why, you ready for this? That's why the church is a mystery. Because the church was not necessarily a foregone conclusion. The church is the result of the rejection of the king and a rejection of the kingdom. And the church is God's answer. Okay? Here's, here's how I get there. When, and just do this sometime. When you read the early part of the book of Matthew, the message of Jesus is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And watch every single time that Jesus heals somebody. What does he say to the people that he heals? How often did Jesus say to him, look, 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 don't tell anybody. Isn't that interesting? Don't tell anybody. Simply go and do what? Anybody remember what Jesus told him to do? Huh? Show yourself to the priests. Why? Because it was the priestly responsibility to look at any claim of healing or any claim of miraculous activity and affirm that it was from God. That was part of the role of the priest. And so Jesus was saying, look, you go to the priest, present yourself to the priest because this is not a popularity contest. I'm asking the leaders of Israel to confirm that the blessings and the miracles of God are present. Because if the miracles of God and the blessing of God is present, then the, what was the message? The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. And he was asking the priests to go, oh my goodness. We are affirming that a miracle has happened. We're affirming that God is moving through a prophet. And the prophet is presenting the kingdom. And you go through the entire early ministry of Jesus Christ. And his message is the kingdom is near. Okay? Yeah. I know this is going to sound naive. But is there any evidence whatsoever coming up to this moment that the Jewish people would change? That the Jewish people would change? Yes. Just accept Christ. Yeah. They couldn't all through the, New, or the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, I don't even know necessarily how to answer that. You know, the, the, the one thing that's interesting about the Jewish people is that when they are on, when they're in love with God and following Him, they are sold out on. And when they are off... They are really off. You know, they, they have this, this heartbeat type of relationship with God all through history. And so I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know how to answer. You know, I think the answer, I guess, at the end of the day is they weren't ready. You know, they weren't ready to hear this message and they weren't ready to receive it at this point. Their blindness was foretold in Isaiah. Sure. In cha- I think it's chapter 66. Yeah. It said that they would take on a spirit of blindness and would deny the truth. Sure. And that the nations uh, would be opened more to uh, the coming of the Messiah than the Jewish people. Right. And I, so, in other words, don't be wrong. As I'm saying this, and I'm saying the kingdom is at hand, and God offered the kingdom, and the Jews could have taken it, I'm not saying for one moment that God did not know their answer. I believe God knew their answer perfectly. Does that make sense? I'm just saying I think the offer was real. It'd be like this, okay? Let me give give you an example. When I was a a young man, uh, I wanted to go to Bible college. I felt a deep call to go to ministry. My dad, because of where he was at that moment in his life, 
thought the ministry was probably the stupidest decision that his son could ever make. So he attempted to do what every father would do in that particular moment to bribe me. And uh, uh, he offered and said, if you will go anywhere except for Bible college, if you'll go to any other college and graduate first, and then you can go to Bible college afterwards, but if you'll go to any other college besides Bible college, I will buy you the car of your choosing on the day you graduate. Now, here's the deal. My dad knew how ornery and stubborn I was before he made the offer. He, he I think, knew pretty darn well my answer was, Dad, no way. I, and matter of fact, my answer in, in as Christian terms as I could give him was, you can't buy me. But um, it, it was an interesting conversation. Here's the deal. The offer was real. He would have bought me the car if I had gone to four years of another college. I turned it down. The offer was real. What I'm suggesting to you today is, is that when Jesus begins his ministry, he makes a real offer to Israel and says, if you'll accept me, we'll do the kingdom here and now. If you'll take me, this is a real offer. Now, did God know because he's God that they would turn it down? Yes, God knew. But the offer was real and their choice was real. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Is, that to say, is that to say there wouldn't be salvation for the Gentile if they would have taken his offer? Well, there, again, now you're getting back to, and I don't, because I'm not God, I don't know how to, 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 I don't know how to navigate that, but here's my answer. Yes, there would have been salvation for the Gentile, and for the very reason we just said, the Old Testament talks about the Gentile coming to God. So God had already foreseen that, and it would have happened. So it would have happened differently than how it happened. But it would have happened because God is never going to fail in any of his promises. It just would have happened differently than how it did. Okay? In, in many ways, guys, this is, this is kind of like when we go back and study history and we go, wow, this general at this moment, if he would have just pressed the attack, would have won the battle. But instead, in that moment, he got scared and he stopped attacking and he lost. You know, you're talking about a human decision that changed the course of history. And that's what we're talking about here. I told you we'd burn your brains a little bit. Yeah. Hi, Pastor. Yeah. What would have happened if that was the case to all the Old Testament about the suffering Savior? Ask it again. And all, all the Psalms about by his stripes being healed, right? being hung on a cross. If the kingdom would have come, wouldn't that have made the scriptures about what Jesus had to come and do void? All I, here, here's all I'm saying, okay? And I, you're asking, and I, I, I don't know how to accurately fill in the blanks, okay? All I'm saying is this. Every Old Testament prophecy would have been fulfilled, okay? God is never going to break a promise. He is going to fulfill every Old Testament prophecy that's made. But the offer was real, let me, let me see if I can do... Let me, let me see if, some, if this can help. And then, then we're going to have to go. Okay, I'm not getting... All right. I, I was going to say, you already said it, that the attitude... Christ still would have died on the cross. Mm-hmm. But the attitude at the crucifixion... Probably would have be been different. that of rejoicing. Right. Rather than rejection. Right. And so the Gentiles are still saved by Jesus' blood. Yeah, absolutely. Here, Here's the best I can... And then we got to keep going because we've got other stuff I want to get to tonight. 
Some of you guys remember a while back, we were in a contract negotiation because we were supposed to do a building project. The guy who was going to be our project manager wanted to get paid even though we hadn't done the pro We got into negotiations. We got into doing settlement. We made multiple offers to him. I, in my mind, great offers, legitimate offers. We were willing on every single one of those occasions we made the offer to fulfill the offer. He turned down every one of them. And the answer is even because we'd already seen the spirit of his heart, even as we made those very legitimate good offers, we all sat in the room while the lawyer was walking across to make the offer going, he's going to turn it down. Yes, that's what he's going to do. And we're not even God, but we had figured that answer out. God knew the answer. That's all I'm saying. But the offer was legitimate. That's the other part you need to hear me say. I believe at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, he is saying to Israel, if you'll take me, we'll do the kingdom right now. And it was a legitimate offer. And whatever this thing is that's going on with the Gentiles, it, would have ha it just would have looked different than it does. It wouldn't have looked this way. It would have looked differently when it happened. Okay, Let me, let's see if we can land this and then we want to keep going. And if you want to talk more, I'll stay afterwards. Here's, here's how I get the rest of this conversation. You go through Matthew, the entire early ministry of Jesus. I'm going to challenge you to find a time in which Jesus says, I'm going to die. I don't think you can find it in the early part of Matthew. He says to everybody that he heals, go show yourself to the priest. The priests need to affirm that Messiah is here. They need to declare me Messiah. We're not going to do this by popular vote. We're going to do this by the leaders of Israel affirming that I am God come in the flesh. Then you get to Matthew chapter 12. And some of you have heard Matthew chapter 12 called the unpardonable sin. Ever heard of that before? The unpardonable sin. So rather than making you read the whole thing, here's what happens. Jesus has just uh, cast out some demons. The leaders of Israel come to that moment and now they're stuck because all the people are starting to turn in their hearts and believe that Jesus is Messiah. And the, and, and the leaders of Israel have got to do something. And so the leaders of Israel come out and publicly declare that Jesus did not do this by the power of God. Instead, he does it by the power of, of Beelzebub. He's done this by the power of Satan. And in that moment, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You have just done something incredibly dangerous, he says to the leaders of Israel. Because you're taking the works of God and attributing them to Satan. And all sorts of sins will be forgiven for man, but blasphemy of the holy spirit this sin we're not going to cut we're not going to go over okay so it's matthew chapter 12 i think it's verse 28 here we go let's go to verse 25 here we go this is jesus having the showdown with the pharisees jesus knew their thoughts verse 25 matthew chapter 12 verse 25 jesus knew their thoughts and said to them every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand if satan is driving out satan he is divided against himself and how can his kingdom stand and if i drive out demons by beelzebub by whom do your people drive them out so then they will be your judges but if i drive out the demons by the spirit of god look at the next phrase then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Get what he just said? If I'm driving these demons out by the power of God, then the kingdom is right here. Isn't that amazing? And look what he says next. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and, and then can he rob the house? He who is not... 
He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you that every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven for men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Here's the interesting thing. Only time this sin is mentioned, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Think here's the moment. The Messiah is standing there doing, doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, presenting himself as Messiah, declaring that the kingdom is at hand, and the leaders of Israel look the Messiah in the eyes and say, you're of Satan. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. We're crossing a line here. Because the kingdom of heaven is right at the door. Here's the interesting thing, and I'm just going to leave this and you guys can process it. From that day forward, up until that day, Jesus had been preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. From that day forward, he never again says that phrase. Why? Because the leaders of Israel had said no to the kingdom. And guess what he begins to preach? The Son of Man must die. Complete change in the message that Jesus preaches. The Son of Man must die. I'll challenge you in the early parts of Jesus' ministry to find the message, the Son of Man must die. Isn't that interesting? And the crux, I'm going to argue, is this moment in Matthew chapter 12. When the leaders of Israel look Messiah in the eyes and say, You're of Beelzebub. And reject the kingdom. And then this incredible thing called the church becomes the next phase. It's the mystery that nobody saw coming. That God knew. Don't be wrong, I'm not telling you for a moment. God knew it was coming. God knew what those men would do. It did not surprise him on any level. I'm simply saying there was a legitimate offer of the kingdom at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And there was a bona fide turning it down. And if they'd accepted the kingdom, history would have looked different on the deal. All right. So that'll, that'll be enough for you to go home and burn your brains on a little bit. Let's keep going real quick. How much time do we have? Let's see. We've got, uh, 19 minutes. All right. All right. Got tons of time. All right. So let's, here we go. Let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. We are in verse 10. To put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Why isn't the earth under Christ right now? Okay, at creation, who was given authority over the earth? No. Adam. That's, that's part of Africa, Caroline. Okay, all right. Okay, so here's the earth, and, and Adam is asked to manage the earth on God's behalf, and Satan abrogates his responsibility, and the earth falls, and man falls. And part of redemption is putting the earth back under the authority of... So you realize we live in a fallen, broken world. This is not the world Christ made. This is a fallen brokenness, and one day it will be put back under his full authority. Okay. All right. So keep going in him. uh, We also were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that me who were the first to hope in Christ might also be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so this passage said that in the moment you and I became Christians, what happened? Huh? We received the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says right here that the Holy Spirit did two things. What did he do? He marked us. And he guaranteed that we could go to heaven. And what else was he? Guarantee. Okay. The word it uses is deposit. Okay. So in the moment you and I became Christians, we were marked in him with a seal and we were given the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Okay. So here's the two things you got to get, because if you can understand this culturally, it's incredibly powerful. What did they use seals for at this time? What is this seal that he's referring to? What type of seal is it? What is it? Uh, Cattle. In some ways, it would be authentication. So I, I'm, I'm there with you. I believe that a lot of times the seal would be... And how was that seal done to authenticate? Anybody know? Yeah. Signet ring. Okay, so here's the deal. You didn't, you didn't know for sure whether what a guy's signature looked like or anything else, but he had a crest or he had a seal. He had a signet ring, and they would drip wax on, and they'd stick that ring on. And when the minute someone did that, they were saying, this is the seal of the king or this is the seal of the regent. Very often, okay, and so part of it was authentication, but very often the seal would go on the outside of what you and I would consider a letter. It would have been a scroll, but they would seal it. They'd put the wax on and seal it. And when they say sealed it, here's what it, said. it meant. Nobody better open this except the person it's addressed to. And if you open this, if you intrude into this, if you do that, I will kill you. Here is my seal. Here is my promise. Everything I have will come against you if you break this seal. It was a seal. The Bible just said, when you and I became Christians, God sealed us. Isn't that interesting? Second thing he said is he gave the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Okay? So, when do you and I give deposits? You and I give deposits when we are guaranteeing that we are going to return what we're borrowing. Right? So you go down to the rental shop and you want to you want to rent a ditch digger. They're going to say to you, "I want a deposit." And most often, you and I are going to put a Visa card down, and they're going to say, "Okay, here's the deal. I'm going to run a $500 or a $1,000 credit against your Visa card. And if you don't bring my ditch digger back, then I'm going to keep the deposit." Okay? Don't bring the ditch digger back. I keep the deposit. How interesting is it to you that the Bible says the Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit, guaranteeing that you were going to get something in exchange? Isn't that interesting? God gave you a deposit promising he was going to redeem the deposit. What is he going to redeem? What does it say? He is a deposit guaranteeing what? Our inheritance. Which is, what's your inheritance as a Christian? Heaven. 
sonship, right? So stop and think about this a second, guys, because if this will sink in, this is powerful. When you became a Christian, God said, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to give you the Holy Spirit as a deposit. Last time I checked, Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity. So what is God leaving on deposit? Himself. Himself. And he is saying, look, this is what I'm I am guaranteeing that now that you're, you will get to heaven. And if you don't get to heaven, you keep the deposit. Which, think about this, guys. If you and I don't get to heaven, then you and I get to foreclose on God. What do you think the chances are that God's going to let that happen? Hey, God, you're now my slave because, hey, you didn't give me heaven and I'm foreclosing. I'm going to keep my deposit. Never going to happen. But you realize what's happened in this moment is God just said, look, I just gave you a ridiculously high deposit because I wanted you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was no doubt that I would not stand true to my promise to give you heaven. So I left you a deposit that you knew I would never let you foreclose on. I gave you myself. Guys, this would be akin. Can you imagine if you went to the dish digger store and they said, okay, look, here's the deal. If you're going to rent my dish digger, you've got to leave your child. <laughs> and if you agreed, okay, if you agreed, <clears throat> I might agree, but if you agreed, you're going to go back, right? You're, you're not going to let them foreclose on your child. Maybe, Maybe some of us. But you realize that Scripture just said, look, God says, look, I gave you myself as the deposit guaranteeing heaven for you. And he did such a ridiculously, absurdly big deposit because he didn't want you and I to ever, 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 ever doubt that we were going to get heaven. Which is interesting to me because I think Christians all the time doubt this. And yet you and I have got an absurdly big deposit. Isn't that interesting? How much time do we have? Uh, we've got nine minutes. All right, nine minutes. Let me see. Let me see how far we can get this. All right, all right. Let's go the other way. Let's just imagine for a second that you can lose your salvation. Let's just imagine that you can do that. Let me ask you a question. If someone can lose their salvation, which sin do you lose your salvation on? No, which sin do you lose? In other words, we, I, think, I think we all know that there are Christians who would say, I think you can eventually lose your salvation. I think you could do enough sin that you would stop being a Christian. So my question is, if it's possible to lose your salvation, which sin are we going to guess or how many sins do you have to do before you can stop being a Christian? Is it uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we just talked about? Well, that's really good, and I, I would go with you there. But if I remember the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right, Jesus has to be present. You have to be a leader of Israel telling him that he's a Beelzebub. So, yes. But I think you're going to have a hard time pulling that one off. Okay? And remember this. Here's the interesting thing about it. Jesus said, this sin won't be excused. It's before the gift of the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit's given, he says, I promise you, you'll have heaven. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Any. Any sin at all. Sin okay. separates us from God. So okay. one so sin is Okay, so any sin at all. All right, so let's go, let's go with that theory, okay? And I like the theory because I think it's probably, if you're going to go that direction, the most logical theory. Then here's the deal. Do you realize 
how many times I would lose my salvation every day. If every sin I did stopped me from being a Christian, I'd have to ask Jesus in my heart every day. If you were a man, you'd have to ask Jesus in your heart every six seconds. <laughs> right? If, if it was possible that when I sin, I lose my salvation... And you're right, I think the most logical thing is, well, then if, if sin can, then every sin that I did would lose my salvation, I would have to become a Christian. And here's the thing, what's the next thing you do after you become a Christian? In other words, once I become a Christian, what's the next thing I'm supposed to do, the very first act of obedience was to become a Christian? Huh? Baptism. Do you realize we'd be baptizing all of you every Sunday? Every Sunday, because we'd all be becoming Christians again every week. Right? So then, you know, because that's not practical, then let's, let's go ahead and decide. Let's just pick a number. Let's pick an arbitrary number. Let's say a thousand sins is when you lose your salvation. I don't get to the end of a day with an accurate count of my... I wouldn't know when to ask Jesus in my heart again. Would you? And, and, and then there's the sins where you go... I, I, I mean, I thought it, but I didn't do it. How would you ever know if you were in and out? How would you know if you'd lost it or if you got it? Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue if, if you and I could actually lose our salvation? And here's the crazy part. If you and I can, there's not a person in the whole world who can tell you when. And it's an interesting thing because there are churches out there that will tell you you can lose your salvation, but there's not one church out there that can define for you when. And then they're really, really fuzzy on, well, how do you get it back? And do you have to get baptized again? The crazy part is the Bible says, look, 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 look. I think Jesus wanted us to not even have this debate. He said, look, I'm going to settle this for you. I'm going to leave such an absurdly big deposit that you will know that you, there's no way you can ever not go to heaven. Because you can foreclose on the Holy Spirit if you don't get heaven once you're a Christian. Let's just do that. Okay? So I saw a couple questions real quick, and then we'll wrap it up tonight. Uh, real quick, uh, after the rapture, people are coming to Christ. What, yes. is the, what is their seal? What is their deposit? They don't have a seal, and they don't have a deposit. It goes right back to Old Testament times. Okay, so true to what was in the Old Testament was you had to live a life of faith. You had to live a life according to faith at that point. Wouldn't it also be true since Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins, past, present and future? If we lost our salvation, that he would again have to die on the cross. for our Yeah. Sins? So here's the deal. And we didn't get that far tonight. And so and so let me toss um, when. When Jesus dies on the cross, okay, how many of your sins are in the future? All of them. And this is the weird part because you, here's why this, this doctrine ever got started with anybody. Because here's, here's what it feels like. And so, guys, it's really weird when you make doctrine out of what you feel. When I became a Christian, I felt like all my past sins were forgiven. That's how I felt, right, when I became a Christian. And I felt like all of my present sins were covered, too. Okay, so all of my past, all of my present. But here's the deal. When I sinned again, I felt really bad. And so I all of a sudden assumed, well, oh my goodness, 
my present sin, my new sin, my sin since I became a Christian, I, you know, I, I guess I've got to get that one taken care of. But here's what we forget. When Jesus died on the cross, all of my sins were future. And you and I can never measure ourselves theologically by how we feel. We have to measure ourselves theologically by what the Scriptures teach. And the Scriptures teach that when we became Christians, all our sins were forgiven. All of them. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, it was no more hard for God to forgive the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow than it was for Him to forgive the sin that you committed yesterday. Because when He was hanging on the cross, they were still all 2,000 years in the future. And when you became a Christian, He washed all your sins away. Matter of fact, and we won't go there tonight because we just don't have time, but Hebrews chapter 6 makes this exact argument, and here's what it says. It says, if you don't believe that your future sin was forgiven on the cross, because here's the deal, God wrote a check, okay? He wrote a check on that day, and He paid for your sins. And if you believe that your future sins were not covered on the cross, and that somehow you've lost your salvation then it's impossible for you to get saved again. That's what Hebrews 6 says. Because if you don't think the cross fixed your future sins, then Jesus would have to go back on the cross and die for your new ones. Isn't that interesting? So when you and I became a Christian, all of our sins were covered. All of them recovered. So here comes the next question. And this is where we'll end it tonight. Then someone says, Why in the world do I have to confess my new sins? Because if you're telling me I'm a Christian and all of my sins are covered the day I became a Christian, then why do I go back and confess my new sins? What is that all about if you're telling me they were covered at the cross? And here's what you need to know. When you became a Christian, all of your sins were covered legally. In other words, the debt was canceled. You were redeemed. You were bought with a price. Every legal ramification of your sin is covered by the cross in that moment, okay? Here's the problem when you sin after you become a Christian. It's not legal anymore. This isn't about heaven. This isn't about your inheritance. That's all done. It's relationally. And when you sin after you become a Christian, you recreate relational distance between you and God, okay? Here's the best way I can describe that. As a Christian... Here's the will of God. God is going this way, and you and I are supposed to be walking side by side with God. Does that make sense? That's what we're supposed to do. When you and I get to a point we go, God, I don't like that verse. I'm going to date that guy anyways. I'm going to spend my money on that even though I know it doesn't honor you. God, I'm going to do my own thing. You realize what I've done is God is going this way, and I've decided to go this way. But if I do that, okay, God's over there. I'm over here. I just created distance. And it used to be when I was walking in the will of God with God, I, I could go, hey God, what do you think? But now I've got 15 feet of distance. I can't whisper to God. I can't hear every breath of God anymore. And now I've got to go, hey, hey, Jesus, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you're going that way. I'm kind of doing my own thing over here. I'm doing cross country, but I want to talk to you about this. And then the next verse in the Bible comes up that you and I don't like. And so we go, well, no, I'm not going to do that either. So I'm going over here. And God's still over there. And now I'm yelling, God, hey, 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 over here. And you and I, by sinning, create relational distance. Here's what confession is. 
I'm totally out of your will. I'm totally distant from you, God. And I'm, 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 you and I are communicating by yelling now. And you and I simply admit we were wrong. And we come back and say, I, I want to be in fellowship again. How many men in the room have you ever been mad at your wife? I know it's been a long time. Be mad at your wife. In that moment you were mad at your wife, you weren't in fellowship. Here's what I promise. I promise in that moment when that broken fellowship was going on, your talking and communication suffered. Didn't it? Ladies, ever been mad at your husband? Hmm. If you talked at him at that moment, it wasn't good talking. Okay? And because there was a relational gap, what had to happen for that thing to be okay again? Someone had to say, I'm sorry. I don't want it to be like this. Can we be okay again? Well, if you've got a relational gap with God, guess who's the one that needs to say they're sorry? Okay? That's why we confess. It's you and I coming back to God and saying, okay, look, I created a distance. I've been, I've been off track. I've been moving my life away from you. I want to get my life back on track with you. That's why we can, not so we can be children again, not so we can be sons and daughters again, so we can be in relationship and communion again. It's relational, not legal. Okay? All right. Good stuff. Let's have prayer. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just simply come before you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you that even in our worst moments as your children, you do not throw us away. That a child of God is a child of God is a child of God is a child of God, even if I go live with the pigs. Even if I am the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, I'm still a son and I'm still a daughter. And the truth is, just as you told us, you stand and wait looking down the road for us to come back and have fellowship again. And God, I just pray for anybody that's in this room tonight who maybe, maybe feels lost. Maybe they've, they've been through a season of just deep disobedience in their walk with you. And, and they, they, know, uh, they know there is distance there and they know there is a break within their fellowship with you that tonight something would just prick their heart and they'd say, look, I I get that I'm still a child. But I I need to get back right with Dad again. I I need to go fix what I've broken with my father. And I need to go say I'm sorry. And I need to be back in fellowship again. God, thank you for your word and thank you for its truth and thank you that in the end, if we let it, it changes our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you guys.